Thank you, Tim. And uh, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for coming along to listen today. I take it the uh, topic we're dealing with today is not your usual topic that a Christian group on campus would be exploring. After all, isn't it kind of the other side? Aren't we looking at things from the other perspective today? And indeed, that's what we're doing. We're looking at a range of topics around what I've called the new atheism. Now, the new atheism is a code word for the kind of movement at the moment that you might have noticed if you've been listening to the radio or reading uh, the books you find on the top shelves of uh, bookshops around Sydney. Books put out by atheist writers promoting the atheist view of the world. And my job today is to look at these books, which I've read, and to think through their arguments, what they're putting forward as their view and make some critique of them or some examination of them and see if there's anything worth believing in what the new atheists are putting forward. So what I want to do today is three things really. Firstly, talk a bit about why I think atheism's back on the agenda. In fact, why religion's back on the agenda in general. Secondly, introduce you to five of these new atheist writers. I'm not assuming you've read them or even heard of them, but I'll give you a very brief introduction to them so you can uh, interact with the material we've got. And then look at what atheism is. Tease it out a bit, pull it apart a bit. Look at it, try and do it as honestly as possible to look at what atheists are suggesting is the right and true way of understanding the world and then make some responses to that as a Christian. So if I can fit all of that into about 40 minutes, I'll have left a bit of time for questions. And um, I take it this is the sort of topic that opens up lots and lots of questions. So please feel free to ask whatever is on your mind can't guarantee that I can answer it, but I can at least take a stab. So together then, let's look first at why religion might be back on the agenda today. Now let's see if this is going to work for me. No? What did I do wrong there? Click to the next screen. Oh, here we go. Got it. Why is atheism in the news? After all, I can't really remember when I was at university with you this kind of rash of publications on atheism. Why is it now back on the bestseller lists? A couple of months ago, there were four titles on atheism in the top ten non-fiction books of the week. What's going on? Well, I think behind it is this question of why religion is in the news in general. I've got three pointers for you as to why this is the case. The first is September 11. See, as we came to the end of the 20th century, religion had kind of drifted off the public agenda. In fact, there was an economist called Francis Fukuyama, some of you may know, who said we'd come to the end of discussion about ideologies and capitalism had won. Everyone was a happy capitalist now and capitalism was spreading through the world as the best way to organise human affairs. Religious views had kind of drifted off to the edges. And then, September 11, 2001, the planes hit the Twin Towers. And suddenly, everyone remembered... People act on their religious beliefs. Most of the world has beliefs about God and some people are willing to go to the ultimate lengths to act on their beliefs. Religious belief still drives human behaviour and September 11 put that right back into the middle of the agenda such that in a week like this where we've got the APEC uh, meeting in town, issues of religion are part of the whole discussion of terrorism. Religion's right back there in the middle of the public agenda because of the events of September 11. The second reason I think that uh, relig discussing religion is now very topical again is that there's been a lot of scientific study of the connection between having a spiritual view of life 
and human well-being. Now, spiritual is defined very broadly there as some sort of belief in a higher power that drives the way you live. But the studies are now really quite good on whether or not having a spiritual view of the world is good for you. Now, there's some statistics on the screen there. I wonder which way you think it goes. What would 79% of these studies show? Having a spiritual view of the world is actually good for you. It's good for your well-being, where well-being is a kind of index of things like health, happiness, contentment, stability. Having a view that there is a higher power is actually good for human beings. That's not saying anything about whether it's true or not, it's just saying that it's good. 79% of studies demonstrate that. 13% demonstrate that there's really no correlation between the two. 7% have a very complex correlation. And only 1% of studies on this topic suggest that being religious is bad for you. Now, this is fascinating because without exception, all of the books on atheism suggest that being religious is a really bad thing for the human race. But the science, the statistics, the social science is actually suggesting the exact opposite. If you're interested in these figures, I can give you the references later. So this puts the discussion of religion, atheism, hot on the agenda again. And if you're in the field of medical sciences, you may know it's a common question now to ask. What role should spirituality have in the health care of these patients? Religion is back smack bang in the middle of the scientific agenda and every other one. The third reason I think atheism is in the news now is that we're starting to look back on the 20th century and write the history of what went on try to explain to ourselves what the 20th century was on about. When we do that, atheism comes out looking pretty bad. The track record of atheism in the 20th century is really rather terrible. Totalitarian regimes, oppressive regimes, violent regimes were often drawn from atheistic thinking. So it's not that atheism has never been tried. It's actually been tried in the 20th century and it failed to bring about the human flourishing that it set out to develop. So now we have these books on atheism. Is it a case of just those who are, who are in the margins having to cry louder to be heard? Well, we'll have to see. Let's look then at five of these atheist writers uh, just to introduce them to you and the kinds of things that they are saying before I offer some critique. The first is Christopher Hitchens, well-known uh, UK journalist, very funny writer, witty person, um, his book is God is Not Great, but his subtitle tells you what the book's about. How Religion Poisons Everything. His view is that the religious view damages societies to the point where it is so destructive we will only flourish as human beings if we get rid of it. That's Hitchens' view. He works through all religions, all kinds of religions, East and West, suggesting that they are all based on views that hold back the human race from its potential. Sam Harris is one of the younger writers uh, in the group of new atheists, a uh, US postgrad student as uh, last time I looked. And his book, The End of Faith, Religion, Terror and the Future of Reason, argues that we must recover reason as the driving force for human behaviour and that involves getting religion out of the way. It's reason, he says, that will lead us to love. It's a very classical notion that once you are thinking right, you will behave right. We'll have a more loving society if we base everything we do on reason. The third of these authors, you may have seen these people, you may not, 
is Daniel Dennett, a neuroscientist, and his book, Breaking the Spell, Religion as a Natural Phenomenon, argues that we will eventually, eventually, he says, understand that religion is simply a process of your brain's chemistry, something adaptive that you use to get on in life. He doesn't have the evidence for this. He projects biologically back into prehistory to suggest that this is how we will understand how religions developed. But he asks you to come with him in that hypothesis that religion is all about brain chemistry, it's all about biology, it's all about neurology and eventually we will explain it all away as a natural phenomenon. The fourth writer is Michel Onfray and he was out here for the Writers' Festival recently and his book, The Atheist Manifesto, is probably the most philosophical of the lot. He wants to argue the case against, as his subtitle says, Christianity, Judaism and Islam the big three, so to speak, uh, in his language, the big three monotheistic faiths, the beliefs in one God. He draws his inspiration from Nietzsche. Those who are philosophy students among us will know what Nietzsche thought, that the human race had to get beyond its constraints and to emerge into a new age, merge beyond the weaknesses of humanity into a stronger future. Well, Onfray says part of that is stamping out religion, And even if we need to set up atheism as a kind of church with its own rituals and ceremonies, he says, that would be better than the religious views we have at the moment. Well, the final author I want to introduce to you is Richard Dawkins, probably the most familiar name to most of us here. Uh, He's the Professor for the Public Understanding of Science, a chair he holds at Oxford, a privately funded chair by one of the multimillionaires behind Microsoft. This chair was was, uh, promote, was uh, funded to promote Darwinism. And for Richard Dawkins, the connection between Darwinism and atheism is complete and inexorable. You, if you are a Darwinian, you will be an atheist, according to Dawkins. His book, The God Delusion, argues that the view, the understanding that God is behind the world is a delusion of human genetics and one that we will eventually see as a delusion and move beyond. And in his incredibly aggressive book, if you've read it, you'll know what I'm talking about, he argues bitterly against religion. He has a number of attack fronts that he wants to, uh, to employ, to, to work on, to oppose religion. Christianity would be his main target, but not his only target. And I'm going to look at some of those as I discuss what atheism is all about. But Dawkins... Make no mistake, Dawkins is not just writing a book here to get a few academic credits on his CV. At the beginning of his book, The God Delusion, he says to you as a reader, if you're a religious person opening this book, my aim is that you will be an atheist by the time you put it down. He's an evangelist for atheism. He genuinely wants to convert you to his view. So I take it we have a responsibility then as thinking uh, human beings to see is it worth believing the alternative ism, the alternative view of the world that Dawkins puts forward? Has he given us anything more than religious views of the world? Does he improve on the offerings that religions have? Uh, What is it that Dawkins suggests is a better way to live? All right, well, let's look at that in detail then. Those are the uh, five atheists that you may come across on the bookshelves around town and in the library here. But before we look at the details, I wonder where you put yourself at the moment. I wonder where you put yourself on these kinds of questions. 
You see, in doing this talk, I'm making no assumptions about who's here. I'm certainly not assuming the room is full of Christians. Perhaps there are Christians here, and I'm sure there are, people who have given their belief, their, their life, to Jesus Christ. The belief Jesus Christ, as given to us through the Bible, is indeed the Son of God, the Saviour of the world, and the one to whom we owe everything. There will be people like that in this room here today. As I explore atheism, I'd ask you to examine your view. See how it holds up. See whether it is worth believing. After all, there's no point having these kinds of discussions if we're not all considering whether or not the views that we hold make sense. Perhaps you're an atheist. Come along to see what uh, the Christian group would say about atheism. I'm very pleased you have. I hope you will listen critically as well to what I say, but take on board some of my own criticisms of atheism as a view and examine why it is that you are drawn to this view there is no God and whether that holds up to scrutiny. I take it some people here will be agnostics, not sure how to solve these questions of the big God issue. Well, in what I say, I think I may give you some, some ways forward, some steps to take as you seek to wrestle with this issue. I'm very pleased that you would do that because after all, what is more significant to do in this life than wrestle with the question of God, whether there is a God, what that God is like and what that God might require of you. But I hope you're not an apatheist. Have you heard this term before, the apatheist? It's the person who is just apathetic about the God question and you probably wouldn't be here today if that was you unless you thought there was free food and you're very disappointed to get here and there's not. Apatheists don't care. They're the sort of people in the ancient world who had a Latin inscription on their gravestone that said, I was, I am not, I don't care. That's the apatheist kind of view and it's, it's a kind of attractive view sometimes, isn't it, where it's just the easy kind of view to take. Oh, how can I ever resolve all that stuff? I'm just going to get on with life. Well, can I urge you not to be an apatheist? There is evidence to examine There are arguments to consider. There are points of view you must take account of as you move forward in your own life and try to sort out what human existence is all about. I'm very pleased these atheist books are back in the bookstalls because they raise the God question back up to the right level, to the seriousness with which we must take it. It's very easy to be a kind of practical atheist, an apatheist, wandering about in your life just leaving the God questions to the side because everything else seems far more pressing and far more interesting. Can I urge you that you not be that person? That you take this opportunity to examine what you think about God. All right, well, let's look at atheism in a little bit of detail then. See, atheism is not of a piece. It's not one thing. I've broken it up into four varieties of atheism, four kind of strands of atheism that tell us different things about this world view. I want to give you maybe a couple of minutes on each of these. Of course, we could spend whole lectures and indeed you have whole courses here at university dealing with the kinds of issues that come up in these streams. But let me, let me just be brief and succinct with you. The first kind is philosophical atheism. That's the view that it is logical not to believe in God and the flip side that it's illogical to believe in God. That it's logical to believe there is no God and that it's illogical to believe there is a God or gods. Well, it has to be said, this view, philosophical atheism, has not been very common throughout history. 
if you reach back into the ancient world, it's full of gods. Whether it's the Egyptian culture, the Greeks, the Romans, all have their powerful mythologies with which they explain life. Likewise, in the Middle Ages, Christianity and Islam were so structurally part of society in the West, I'm not going to talk so much about the East that I don't know about, that the idea of no God was very rare. In fact, any intellectual worth uh, who thought his reputation was uh, worth keeping would not put forward the view that they were an atheist. It's not until the late 18th century that philosophers start to suggest that maybe the arguments for God's existence don't work. And famously, David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, comes along asserting that we can know nothing outside of our sense experience and therefore nothing meaningful about God. Well, philosophical atheism is the sort of thing you really don't meet very much outside of the tutorial classroom at university. At university, it takes largely this shape. It's a discussion about the arguments for God's existence put forward by Thomas Aquinas, the very famous medieval theologian. Most discussion of philosophical atheism is a critique of Aquinas and views springing from him that suggest that it is logical to be a theist. That's the discussion that still goes on in the philosophy uh, classrooms today. Now, if you're not a philosopher, you may feel that the philosophers have given up on God ages ago. But it's not true. In fact, in the last 30 or 40 years in American philosophy, the Christians in philosophy have risen to the top of the mainstream field. People with names like Alvin Plantinga have come to the top of mainstream philosophy. He himself is a strong Protestant Christian. See, there really hasn't been any strong attack on the belief in God that has worked. There has been no demonstration that it is illogical to believe in God. Furthermore, people keep putting forward valid arguments for God's existence that are hard to tear apart. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that when I look at one argument from Dawkins. Actually, let me do that now. You see, in Dawkins' book, he claims that none of the arguments that have been put forward for God's existence in the past really work, but he dismisses them in one or two pages. That's not doing philosophy. But what he does suggest is that there's a new argument, an argument for atheism that works. Here it is. I'll try and give it to you in a couple of sentences. You'll need to read the book if you want to get it in detail. He says, let's take for granted that this universe is very, very complex and that very, very complex universes don't come about by chance. Okay, the theists say that, well, therefore, the explanation for the universe is God. But for God to be the explanation of the universe, of the very complex universe, God would have to be even more complex than this universe that would not come about by chance. Therefore, God is even more unlikely to exist than the universe. That's the Dawkins argument for God's non-existence. Now, I can see some glazed eyes there. It's the sort of thing you have to read, think through, but that's what he calls the argument uh, from improbability. I have a brief answer to it, if you'll be pleased to know. And that is that the God that Dawkins is saying doesn't exist through this argument is not the God that theists believe in. You see, this argument only works if God is of the same stuff as the universe. But Christians, Jews, Muslims, just to speak for those three, 
do not think God is of the same stuff as the universe. They think he is of a different substance. Ontologically separate is the phrase they like to use. And therefore this argument does not work as an argument against theism. It might be an interesting argument to put up against pantheism, the view that God is in the created order, is in everything. Then it might be interesting to look at. But for those who believe that God is a separate being to the universe, this argument holds no weight whatsoever. So there has been little progress, one would say, in defeating theism through the tools of philosophy. Uh, Despite reputation, it still makes incredible sense logically to believe there is a God. The second kind of atheism I want to deal with, I told you I'd deal with these quickly, is sociological atheism. That's the view that human societies grow out of believing in God. They grow out of it. They, they mature into atheism. Well, is this true? And I'm always someone who wants to look at the evidence, see if there really is evidence that this takes place. Interestingly enough, there is some evidence that as societies grow more stable, wealthier, more secure, beliefs in God go down. As a society becomes more stable, more affluent, more secure politically, the rate of belief in God or gods tends to drop. There's a little bit of evidence. If you're interested in that, you can look at the book The Cambridge Companion on Atheism, which has tried to pull together some of these figures. They're not indisputable, but there's some evidence there. But is that an argument against God's existence? Or does it not just tell you more about human behaviour? That when we start to feel stable, when we start to feel secure, when we've got money, we start to just leave those God questions to the side. It's not that God is disproven by the very fact that we can pay our bills and live in a politically stable environment. It's just that we tend to easily forget the God question once we're stable in that way. I would argue that this says more about the human heart than it says about anything to do with arguments about God's existence. The third kind of atheism that's uh, there in these books is called Darwinian atheism. That's the view that eventually the theory of evolution will explain everything about the world and there will be no need for the hypothesis of God. Here is where someone like Dawkins is on his strongest ground. Him being a scientist, professor in the sciences, I'm not. My doctorate is in literature. I'm interested in theology. I'm not going to try and comment on his view of evolution. In fact, one of the things I'm critical of him is speaking outside of his area of expertise. So I don't want to make the same mistake. But I will just say a couple of points on this. It has always struck me that Darwinism is more a mechanism than a philosophy. It's more about explaining how things take place over time at the biological level than the why or any of the meaning questions. I'm not alone in thinking this. In fact, Stephen Jay Gould, another very prominent scientist interested in exactly the same things as Dawkins, popularising science and evolution, had this to say about this question of Darwinism leading to atheism. Gould said... To say it for all my colleagues, for the umpteenth millionth time, science simply cannot, by its legitimate methods, 
adjudicate the issue of God's possible superintendence of nature. We neither affirm nor deny it. We simply cannot comment on it as scientists. In other words, Gould says, don't extrapolate from your understanding of genetics to your view of God. That's an illegitimate use of scientific authority. That's exactly what Dawkins does over and over again in his book. We see it most profoundly in his discussion of memes. Have you heard of this word, M-E-M-E-S? If you've read Dawkins before, you'll know it's a word he uses now and then. Memes are to genes what ideas are to physical, the physical realm. In other words, if genetics explains how your, your characteristics get passed on physically, well, memetics explains how your views, your beliefs, your ideas get passed on to the next generation. Dawkins suggests that memes will work just like genes. Jumping from brain to brain is the phrase he uses in his book to pass on things like a belief in God. Now, friends, here Dawkins jumps out of being a scientist into being some other kind of theoretician. This is not science that he is suggesting. Yes, there are some uh, studies in memetics, uh, mainly in the fields of psychology, but it is not science that he is putting forward here. It's a suggestion without a means, without a mechanism for passing on the ideas. It's just a suggestion that this is how people tend to continue to believe in God. My question to you is, is that a convincing enough suggestion for what it means to be religious? Are you going to hang your understanding of religion on this new field of memetics? Or are there other more solid things you can do? All right, well, the last category of atheism I want to consider is ethical atheism. And here's where it gets really interesting. You see, it's the ethical nature of the new atheism that intrigues me the most. The view of all of these writers is that it is more moral to be an atheist than to be a religious person. It is more moral. The argument they all put forward is that religion is actually disgusting. Religion causes people to do terrible evils. It causes wars. It brings about child abuse. It causes sexual oppression. This argument over and over again uh, is put across uh, by Dawkins and his friends. Let me read to you, in case you think I'm exaggerating, the beginning of the second chapter of Dawkins' The God Delusion, where he's describing the God that he finds when he reads the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomachistic, capriciously malevolent bully. You see, when you read that, you realise we're not dealing with scholarship here, we're dealing with rhetoric. And Dawkins is very angry with religious people. He's very angry because he thinks religion is wicked and immoral and causes people to do terrible things. Now, I am not going to stand and defend every Christian, every Muslim, every religious person for what they do. It is true that terrible things are done in the name of a God. But it is not true that most religious people lead worse lives 
than most atheist people. You just can't make those kinds of generalisations. In fact, I'd like people to look at the evidence to see whether the uh, contrary to that is true. You see, Dawkins and his friends want to develop an atheist church, a new way of living as a human being. In fact, he has even a set of Ten Commandments in his book that he thinks all civilised people will agree on. It's a new utopian vision of what it would be like to live without religion but everyone behaving well according to the Dawkins Creed. If you think I'm exaggerating, please read the book. He is suggesting that human beings, once they're using their reason, like Sam Harris suggests, removing all superstition from the picture, will all get on really, really well. Well, my problem with that is, what happens when it doesn't work? What happens when, in the atheist church, people don't live up to the code of behaviour? After all, I'm sure we're in a room here full of people who know they have not lived up to even their own codes of behaviour at all periods in time. What happens within the atheist view of the world when you fail on one of those criteria? When you do harm another person, when you do wrong, when something terrible that can't be reversed is done, maybe you kill someone, what happens within the atheist order? Now, you could just say, well, that person is just forgiven. It's just dealt with. It's just as if it didn't happen. But where's the justice in that? After all, when wrongs are done, we demand justice. If a person is killed, someone should pay. Where's the justice in the atheist creed? But at the same time, well, we know people make mistakes. We know it's only human to err. So we don't want, especially for us, when we do wrong, we don't want justice. We want mercy. So how does the atheist show mercy? How do, you, how do you be just and merciful at the same time? Well, one of the reasons I'm a Christian is because I believe that Christianity in the message of Jesus Christ has an answer to that question. It's not my topic today, but that's the key to understanding the Christian gospel, as it's called, the good news of Jesus Christ, that in his death and his resurrection... The payment for sin is made, justice is done and mercy can be offered to all of us who sin. That's the Christian message. That's where I think there's an answer to the problem of human behaviour, the problem of human failure that I can't see anywhere in the atheist's agenda. Well, there are four varieties of atheism. There's so much more that could be said on each of them, but I said I'd just introduce you to them and I do want to have time for questions. I want to give you ten very fast responses I make as a Christian to this atheist agenda. Ten very fast responses that I hope you'll go away and consider before saying something about the Bible. The first is, there's actually a good critique of religion going on in these books that I want to commend there's a good analysis of some of the wrongs of religion. As a Christian, I don't see myself as particularly religious. Religion is where you've got to fulfil quests to please your God or you've got to try and live up to the God's standards or it's all over and the God just punishes you or you're trying so hard, striving so hard to be perfect that you'll go to any length to do whatever you think your God wants you to do. That's religion. Christianity is about grace. It's about the recognition of human failure 
and the love of God poured out to us in Jesus Christ to say that you, you sinners, are worthy in God's eyes because of Jesus. So there is a good critique of religion going on in these books. Not all religions are the same and some of the things that are done by people in order to try and please their God are in terribly wicked things. I cite September 11 as my key example. Second uh, response to consider is, I also want to condemn Christian sinfulness. When you see child abuse in the churches, when you see Christians behaving violently, when you see Christians ignoring the poor, it's terrible. It's not Christianity. They're not behaving as Christians when they do that. And I condemn that in others and I condemn it in myself. As a Christian, I don't want to run away from the wrongs that Christians have done. I don't want to overstate them. Christians did not cause all wars. But I don't want to run away from them either. I accept Christians have done the wrong thing and need forgiveness. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be forgiven. Thirdly, we must not be naive about these atheist ethics that are being put forward as the answer for human beings. You see, it's been tried before. In the 20th century, an atheist agenda was tried, a new moral agenda without reference to God. It didn't work. There's no reason to think that the kind of uh, ethical scenarios put forward by Dawkins and others will eventuate in a better human race. We just don't work that way as human beings. Fourthly, many of the actual ethics put forward as good by atheists are in fact drawn from Christian roots. Now I can't explore this in great detail but let me give you two examples. Humility. Humility as a virtue. I take it most people in this room would think it was a good thing to be humble. Humility has its origins in the teachings of Jesus developed out of some of the teachings of the Old Testament. It was a shock to the Roman Empire of the day. Humility was not a virtue to them. Those who have studied ancient history will know. That view that you ought to consider yourself humbly, something that atheists think is very important and that I think is very important, is drawn from the teachings of Judaism and Christianity. One other teaching, caring for the poor. Do all religions think caring for the poor is a good idea? You only have to travel the world to see that that's not true. Caring for the poor, caring for those most disadvantaged as if they were like you, as if they were the same as you, is drawn from the teachings of Jesus. You might want to debate this with me in terms of history of religions, but I think you'll see the teachings of Jesus were radical on this issue. Caring for the most disadvantaged is a Christian concept. Some of these atheist ethics are drawn from Christian roots without acknowledging it. Fifthly, I still think atheists are avoiding the best arguments for God's existence. The argument that why is there something here rather than nothing? The best explanation for that being that God, the eternal God, created the universe. Or the moral argument that really the only way of making sense of moral behaviour is if there's a judge of some sort. Otherwise, it's just whatever you can get away with. These arguments are not dealt with in any detail by these thinkers. Sixthly, when you read these books, the language is shocking. I feel that Christians will be sued if they talked in the same way about atheists. Now, some people have told me when I've said this before that I should listen to American shock jock Christian uh, radio DJs and I'd hear some Christians really, well, if that's the case, I condemn that Christian sinfulness. 
because Christians should not talk like that. But the language, the aggression, the bitterness has really struck me and um, I've wondered why people like Dawkins are so bitter. Seventh, apart from that argument I tried to explain to you in one minute from Dawkins, there really is no new evidence or new arguments to say that God doesn't exist. There's no knockdown argument that finally now in the 21st century we finally disproved God. There's nothing there like that. It's the same arguments we need to consider that we've always needed to consider. It's the same evidence about God's action in the world. It's the same working through the issues to see what is the most sensible position to take on the God question. Eighthly, as I said, it's too simplistic to say people grow out of their atheism. Sorry, grow out of their theism. It just doesn't happen that way. Let me give you one example. Francis Collins is the head of the Human Genome Project in the States. He's also an evangelical Christian. One of the reasons Bill Clinton announced the genome, the mapping of the human genome in the way he did, saying we now know how God did it, was because Francis Collins was the head of the project. He sees no inconsistency in knowing how God did it and being a scientist. God and science fit together for someone like Francis Collins and he became a Christian late in his university career. So it's too simplistic to say, well, people and societies, they just grow out of their belief in God. There are plenty of counterexamples. In fact, atheism will still be rare. It still is rare. It's a rare view to find a person who thinks there is no God. Now, it may not be rare in this room, may not be rare on this campus, but it is a rare view. Most people in most societies at most times in history have believed in some kind of divine being. It's like the default position of the human race. I feel the onus is on the atheist to show why that default position doesn't hold. Thus far they haven't done it. And finally, I'm not frightened or worried about these books being on the top ten bestseller list. Sometimes you'll hear Christians saying, well, this is a terrible time we live in, you know, all these books on atheism influencing people. No, it's a chance to explore. It's a chance to think through once again why you would believe in God. To think through those who are convinced that there is no God and see if they're really onto something. To look at the evidence for things like Christianity, the teachings of Jesus, what's there in the Bible about him and see whether that is more convincing than the view of the universe put forward by the atheists. I wanted to finish with the Bible because as a Christian I look to the Bible for my guidance. And it's fascinating as you look to the Bible to see what it says about atheism. It may not surprise you that there isn't much about atheism in the Bible. God's existence is assumed. But there's a lot of talk about God it feeling like God doesn't exist. The Bible's not naive about human experience. As you read the Bible, you know that humans there, just like us, can't see God. They cry out to God, Where are you, God? The prophets cry out, God, come and bring justice to the world. In the Psalms, David cries out, God, why am I suffering down here? There's this hunger for God that's common to humanity. But there is one teaching the Bible has on atheism, and it's a tough teaching. It's a tough quote. I'm just going to read the top one there. You can read the other one yourself later. The fool says in his heart there is no God, says Psalm 14.1. They are corrupt, their ways are vile, there's no one who does good. Could I have found a more offensive Bible verse to use in a talk on atheism? 
the fool says in his heart there is no God? Am I suggesting all atheists are fools? Well, I'm not saying that if you are someone who's thinking through the arguments about God that you're a fool. You could be thinking them through and coming to the conclusion that you think it's most logical there is no God. You're not a fool for doing that. What I think the Bible is getting at here is saying that there's a connection between the head and the heart for human beings. There's a connection between what we're thinking about, how we're living, how we're feeling, what we're doing in our lives. And it's asking that you examine your heart as you examine your head. See, some people will be running away from God. Some people will be running away from the sense that there is a judge. Running away from the idea that there is a creator. Hoping that there is no God. If that's you, can I ask you to reconsider? The fool says in his heart there is no God, according to the Bible. The the bottom verse is even tougher. You can take that away and read you from the beginning of Romans talking about how there really is no excuse since God has left in the world evidence of his existence. But the last Bible quote to leave is mainly for the Christians. You see, these atheists are convinced that atheism would lead to a better life. One of the reasons is that they've looked at Christians and found them wanting. The way a Christian behaves really matters. And true wisdom is shown in good conduct. The New Testament is clear on this over and over again. If you truly understand that Jesus Christ is Lord and Saviour, you will seek to live out a life that commends Jesus to those around you. You'll fail now and then, but you must pursue a life where your conduct shows forth God's works in the meekness of wisdom. I love that phrase as a way of describing what Christianity is about. It's about living a life that is wise in its understanding of God, works itself out in good ways in the world, in a kind of meekness that is attractive and draws others to consider whether God may exist and Jesus may reveal him to us. Well, I've probably left only one time for one or two questions. Would people like to throw their hands up? Can I do that? Yep. What would you like to say? Comments, questions, anything? Up the back. I'll see if I can. Chance to explore? Yeah. Thanks. Yes, it is easy to mishear me on that one. The only point I'm trying to make there is that some of the things that atheists have put forward as common human ethics, almost in a Kantian sense, that you know, everyone holds these views, if you're a civilised person you'll believe this, Some of them are actually drawn specifically from Jesus' teachings. You don't get them in the common kind of moral experience. Humility and caring for the poor being the two I chose. So that's the only point I was trying to make there. I'm not suggesting that there are... Okay, I see. So the point is, well, Jesus might have said some terrible things uh, that we shouldn't live by. Yeah, sure. And um, yeah, I'd love to have that discussion with you. What... What in Jesus' teachings do you find morally offensive? And let's see if we can talk about that, see if the understanding of those teachings is, uh, my understanding of it is what yours is and so forth. Yeah. But I'd be very happy to have that discussion. Yeah. I'll just take one more. Yeah. Uh, there was a hand over here I missed somewhere. No? Someone eating. Okay. Yeah, sure. What do you think about the 
Thank you. It's a great question. Is um, If the agnostic view is the most believable view, then does it not make more sense to be a humanist and to build your, build your understanding of uh, how to live based on humanist ethics? Yeah. Uh, I think that actually highlights the problem with agnosticism because there is no clear humanist ethic that is not drawn from particular views of the human future or God's existence. So in Dawkins' book, one of the different kinds of commandments he has that really differs from all religions as far as I understand is that you should, by and large, uh, care for all species in a similar way. Uh, I'm just summarising it there, that by and large all species have the same rights would be a way of perhaps putting it. Now that's where humanism comes unstuck because humanism suggests there is a specialness to the human being. If there's a specialness to the human being, well why? Is it just that it's the top of the evolutionary chain at the moment? No, most humanism actually brings in at the back end a view that humans are somehow spiritual or special or elevated which leads you back to religious views of what a human being is all about. So I appreciate the shape of the question that you know, let's all sort of live in peace and harmony as hum- with that humanistic creed, but that humanistic creed imports into it religious thinking already. It's very hard to come up with a set of ethics that doesn't draw on some kind of divine foundation. So in the end, the God question returns and the agnosticism has to be an unsettled position You have to keep thinking as an agnostic and end up somewhere else because it's a fence you can't really sit on in life. I better leave it there. The next class is coming in. Thanks for listening and I'll hang around afterwards.